We are now two weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and despite a massive numerical and technological advantage, Russia has still failed to secure air dominance over the embattled nation. It would seem that popular perceptions of Russia's military power, which have been intentionally shaped by Moscow for years, are finally beginning to unravel. Let's dive into the airspace over Ukraine and Russia's defense apparatus. I'm Alex Hollings, and this is Air Power. On paper, Russia's air force outnumbers Ukraine's by more than 20 to 1. And while no one expected Russia to send every combat aircraft they have into Ukraine, Russia's inability to dominate the skies, despite such a massive numerical advantage, and while further bolstered by advanced surface-to-air defense systems like the S-400 Triumph, is pretty tough to wrap your head around. Depending on where you get your information and how they vet it, Russia has lost somewhere between 11 and 49 fixed-wing aircraft since fighting began two Wednesdays ago. And the truth is, regardless of the reasons behind Russia's failure to secure air supremacy, the nation's inability to do so has allowed for valuable tactical and political victories for Ukraine over the past two weeks. From legends of a Ukrainian ace MiG-29 pilot known as the Ghost of Kyiv inspiring Ukrainians and others all around the world, to stories about small Ukrainian drones destroying Russian armor in a 40-mile-long traffic jam headed into the nation's capital. Because of Russia's dominant numbers, the story tends to be focused on what they're doing wrong. But that shouldn't discount the incredible bravery and heroism shown by Ukrainian warfighters and civilians alike, often using man-portable anti-air weapons, or man-pads, to take on Russian aircraft directly. And also not to be dismissed are the incredible Ukrainian pilots, men and women like the Grey Wolf, who was shot down near Kyiv last week, who are taking to the sky despite overwhelming odds to square off with some of Russia's best as they defend their nation. But let there be no mistake, Russia's military has problems. Not one problem, but a symphony of them. Numerous arguments have surfaced to explain Russia's lack of air supremacy, from their lack of precision ordnance limiting the pace of sorties to Russian pilots and air defense operators lacking combat competency, making the chances of friendly fire just too high. In an excellent piece of analysis from the Royal United Services Institute, research fellow Justin Bronk offers a number of insights into Russia's air superiority struggle. While the article itself really warrants reading, here are some important conclusions from Bronk's essay. Russia's small stockpile and long resupply timelines for precision-guided munitions have limited the Air Force's ability to conduct viable strike missions. As Bronk points out, this isn't just a problem today, but it also means that Russian pilots have very limited experience leveraging these types of weapons. A lack of targeting pods also makes precision strikes very difficult, meaning most fixed-wing assets may be waiting for authorization to commence Russia's more traditional approach to unguided bombardments. Russia also seems uncertain of its ability to deconflict in a target-saturated environment, as evidenced by the nation's history of friendly fire incidents dating back for decades. And finally, Bronk points to a lack of pilot training, which makes Russian aviators less capable and competent in such a volatile combat environment, which means they may not be comfortable with using some of the more advanced systems at their disposal. In another story from the outlet The Aviationist, defense analyst Guy Plopsky offers some further explanation for Russia's inability to dominate the skies over Ukraine, adding to Bronx's list. Plopsky highlights how some Ukrainian air defense systems seem to still be in operation days or weeks after the war began, and points to Russia's lack of dedicated suppression of enemy air defense platforms akin to America's Wild Weasel F-16s, which are F-16s modified specifically for their role in hunting down and destroying air defense systems. I'll go ahead and quote Plopsky here. On this note, while Russia's operational tactical aviation includes many aircraft types capable of employing anti-radiation missiles, it lacks a dedicated SEAD platform. There are no Russian wild weasels. Now, I want to clarify for those who are unsure, an anti-radiation missile is effectively a missile that hunts down the radiation emitted by radar arrays. In other words, an anti-radiation missile is an anti-air defense missile. 
Now, Plopsky does point out that a lack of a dedicated SEAD platform, like a wild weasel, alone wouldn't really be the full culprit here. But when you add it to Russia's very slow processing of strike packages, followed by even slower battle assessments of those strikes, you've got a recipe for a bad time. The most logical explanation, as laid out by experts around the world, seems to be an unwieldy combination of problems, some of which are related to the current fighting and poor planning, but many of which can be attributed to Russia's funding priorities in recent years. And as luck would have it, that's something I have a lot of experience talking to. As we've covered time and time again at Sandbox News, Russia has devoted a huge amount of resources into converting its defense apparatus into a rolling advertising platform for foreign weapons and equipment sales. The nation's stagnating economy, already struggling under international sanctions, has severely limited Russia's ability to modernize its military force. But despite that, Russia has continued to fund the development of new weapons and systems, all aimed at garnering a great deal of attention, rather than focusing on maintaining or improving its existing equipment fleets. But why would Russia do such a thing? Well, to put it simply, Russia just can't afford to mass-produce advanced platforms like the Su-57 or the T-14 Armada tank without foreign interests footing the bill. Russia's annual defense budget floats at right around $60 billion a year, but to be fair, that figure can be a bit misleading. Russia spends less on just about everything across the board, from salaries and benefits for personnel to manufacturing and material costs. But even when accounting for these discrepancies, their total spending power is still a fraction of America's or China's. Now, I've covered in the past how China hides a great deal of its defense spending behind the guise of domestic programs, as well as how China pays its troops significantly less than other developed nations. But even if we don't include those factors, China's claimed budget remains nearly three times that of Russia's. But whenever the media covers advanced military capabilities like stealth fighters or hypersonic weapons, Russia is presented as not just a peer to big spenders in the East and West, but it's often even suggested that they're ahead of the United States in developing and fielding new technologies. Now, this isn't just the result of wanton sensationalism in Western media, though that does play a role. It's also really important to remember that this hype is a product of Russian design. And that brings us to a discussion about reflexive control. The Kremlin's approach to information operations has long been based on the reflexive control methodology that's taught in Russian military academies and leveraged within Russian military doctrine. I'm going to quote Disinformation and Reflexive Control, The New Cold War by Annie Kowalowski, which was published in the Georgetown Security Studies Review. Reflexive control is a uniquely Russian concept based on Maskarovka, an old Soviet notion in which one conveys an opponent's specifically prepared information to incline him or her to voluntarily make the predetermined decision desired by the initiator of the action. That is, reflexive control is a sustained campaign that feeds an opponent select information so that their opponent makes the decision one wants him or her to. Reflexive control is usually brought up in conversations about Russia's efforts to meddle in foreign elections or sow discord in foreign populations, or to discredit efforts to hold Russia accountable for its aggressive actions. But it's proven just as effective in managing perceptions of Russia's military-industrial complex in recent years. And lest you think this is a position I've invented over the past two weeks, this is something I've been covering for literally years now. A few years back, I actually had an Amazon bestseller that covered this issue to some extent alongside other national information campaigns. You see, the Kremlin is well aware of how the world's media reports on advanced military technologies, leaning hard on sensationalized headlines based on national or manufacturer claims, and almost always without any broader context into the history or potential use of this new hardware. When Russia unveiled their new Su-75 Checkmate, said to be a budget-busting stealth fighter that many compared to the F-35, we saw all media, including me at Sandbox News, flood the world with coverage, highlighting what Russia says this new fighter will do and comparing it to what we know or believe other fifth-generation aircraft are capable of. But was all the fervor surrounding the Checkmate actually justified? 
Russia unveiled what proved to be a largely wooden mock-up of what this notional fighter might look like if one is ever built. But as far as most of the world's coverage was concerned, this jet might as well have already been in production. The media wasn't forced to report it that way, nor were they colluding with Moscow. It's just a matter of the modern media industry and Russia's willingness and ability to manipulate that for their own ends. The truth is that Russia's checkmate is currently nothing more than a design on a sheet of paper. To date, Russia struggled to kickstart production on their existing stealth fighter, the Su-57. In fact, while the US and China both operate stealth fighter fleets with unit counts in the triple digits, Russia only has 12 hand-built prototypes and two serial production stealth fighters in all. Without a foreign investor willing to pay to build the checkmate, we'll likely see it follow in the felon's footsteps, with a token number of hand-built jets flown in parades and called highly capable as Russia continues to court partners with deeper pockets. Russia knows exactly how to stir the media into a frenzy over dramatic new advances in military technology, but it's also well aware of how the media won't be nearly as interested in corrections to come weeks or months later. Russia's Urin 9 ground combat drone is a great example. It was deployed to Syria with tons of fanfare for Russia, but months later, when reports of the drone's repeated and egregious failures finally bubbled to the surface, media coverage of that failure was just drowned out by the trending outrages and anxieties of the day. Russia's first hypersonic weapon, the KH-47M2 Kinzel, is another excellent example, and you can learn more about it in our video about the hypersonic arms race if you're interested. Now, the Kinzel was supposed to be the first of this new slew of hypersonic weapons to enter service for any nation, but it's actually just a 1988-era Iskander short-range ballistic missile, married to a new targeting apparatus and then mounted on a dated fighter, the MiG-31. Once again, Russia's stockpile of Kinzel missiles is reportedly limited to just 10 weapons, but that hasn't stopped outlet after outlet from reporting on them as though the Kinzel represents this massive leap in Russian weapons technology that all of NATO needs to be afraid of. Now, the Kinzel is a nuclear weapon, and I'm not saying we should just disregard new nuclear weapons, but it offers next to no strategic value to Russia other than just great advertising in the world's media. Now, if you're a nation that wants to buy weapons, but you're on America's naughty list, this makes Russia look like a great option for you. I mean, they're fielding hypersonic weapons that even America can't field. Who better to shop with? But with so little money to go around, Russia's heavy investment in problem-ridden but headline-grabbing programs like nuclear-powered cruise missiles Putin says are invincible, or stealth fighters they can't actually put into combat, infantry drones that don't work, UCAVs that are supposed to be stealth but aren't, nuclear drone torpedoes with 50 or 100 megaton warheads, hypersonic weapons, and more, have all clearly come at the expense of modernizing or even maintaining large swaths of the Russian force. After nearly two weeks of fighting over Ukraine, that problem with priorities seems to extend into Russia's air power apparatus as well, substantiating conclusions others have drawn about a lack of training, a lack of precision weapons, and a lack of capability to conduct complex operations in a hectic environment. But now is when we get to an important disclaimer that I bet you a lot of commenters won't make it to, so they'll comment as though I never said this. The problem with writing or telling stories like this, especially while Russian forces are continuing to push toward Kyiv, is that our modern upvote-downvolt culture struggles to appreciate the nuance in saying that Russia's not nearly as capable as they may seem, but are still capable enough to warrant concern. As such, demonstrating Russia's ineffectual approach to military priorities might read a lot like a dismissal of the threat that Russia poses to the U.S., its allies, or its interests at large. That's not the case. Instead, this sort of analysis is all about ensuring our efforts to mitigate Russia's threats are based on the reality of their capabilities rather than public perceptions of them. Russia's military, despite floundering in Ukraine, remains among the largest in the world. And of course, Russia's nuclear arsenal is nothing to be dismissed. But concerns about Russia expanding this conflict into a global war, invading Europe, or taking on the United States directly, are based more on Russia's hard-earned perception of might, rather than Russia's mediocre military reality. Russia's massive collection of air assets could feasibly lay waste to huge swaths of Ukraine if ordered to do so. The nation does boast the airframes and ordnance necessary. 
But blanketing Ukraine in unguided bombs has thus far not been a part of Putin's plan to quickly behead and replace Ukraine's government with a friendly asset. Their inability to perform complex operations with high precision shouldn't be seen as an inability to kill thousands if their objectives shift. But to be clear, Russia should have already been able to secure air dominance over Ukraine without resorting to carpet bombing anything that even resembles an air defense system or a soldier carrying a man pad. The fact that they haven't is a solid argument in favor of the idea that maybe they simply can't. Maybe they don't have the ability or the faith in their troops or the training necessary to pull it off. In any regard, the perceptions of Russia's military prowess are finally starting to align with Russia's military reality. And nowhere is that more clear than in the skies over Ukraine. And on that ends another edition of Air Power from Sandbox News. I'm Alex Hollings. Make sure you swing by sandboxnews.com today and every day for all the latest in news, entertainment, and motivation from all around the force. If you got anything out of today's video, make sure to click like and subscribe down below and leave me a comment so I know what I should cover next. And of course, don't forget to tap on that bell icon so you never miss a drop from Sandbox News. Welcome to Zooming In, I'm Simone Gao. Russia has met unexpected stiff resistance from the Ukrainian military since day one of their invasion. But can the Ukrainian army really drive out the Russians without NATO imposing a no-fly zone and sending ground troops? How well would sanctions work and is Putin adjusting his goals in Ukraine already? And who really bears the responsibility of starting this war? I had these discussions and more with William Warforth, Professor of Government at Dartmouth University. Take a listen. Thank you, Professor Warforth, for joining Zooming in today. Very happy to be with you. Okay, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine. Um, from a historic perspective, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, should Russia take the Soviet place and still be viewed as a major threat to the security of Europe? And uh, why has NATO decided to expand eastwards all these years? Well, that's complicated because at first, NATO did not really regard Russia as much of a threat after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And its reasons for expanding were really about kind of making Eastern Europeans and Central European countries like Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, and ultimately others to feel a little bit more secure in an unstable post-Cold War atmosphere. You know, um, watchers of this with long memories may recall the Balkan wars of the early 1990s. And people thought somehow extending NATO guarantees eastward would reduce the propensity for such conflicts. But ultimately, um, yes, uh, as relations between the West and Russia deteriorated more and more one saw the argument that ultimately, at the end of the day, the core purpose of NATO is to deter or prevent any kind of Russian advance or attack or aggrandizement westward into Europe. Hmm, that's interesting. So you think Russia still is a threat to the security of Europe? Well, yes, uh, and Europe is, uh, at least uh, Russia sees Europe and sees NATO as a threat to itself, and uh, NATO countries see Russia as a potential threat to them. So it's a mutual perception of threat uh, between the Western uh, between the Western alliance and Russia. Hmm. Another aspect to this is that I think it's fair to say that NATO expansion and especially the EU expansion was not just a decision of those member states and America. It is also the wishes of the Eastern European countries that were under the Soviet Union previously. They wanted to become democratic societies and be connected with the West. So should NATO bear the blame of expanding eastward alone? You're, I, that's totally fair. There is no question that um, there was a big demand for NATO. 
and uh, perhaps even a bigger demand in some places for the EU. It was demand driven in many ways, although obviously these two institutions were happy to welcome members as long as they met you know, the criteria that all the existing members agreed upon. So I really do think that it's easy now to go back and try to rewrite history and say, maybe NATO shouldn't have expanded, maybe the EU should have held back from trying to expand. But you're absolutely right to focus on the reality of a big demand for these institutions from those countries. And it's very hard to say no, particularly if the countries really do look like they're ready for membership. Um, just a quick point here is that, you know, this is a problem that Russia has long had. Russia and the Soviet Union and Tsarist Russia, even before that, always say uh, the, the leaders of, uh, of Russia, either from St. Petersburg or Moscow, they always say they want to have friendly neighbors, but they face a problem. Their neighbors are often wanting to go west, and that then puts Russia in a bind. How can I make these countries live in my sphere of influence if they really don't want to? That's been a perennial dilemma of the foreign policy of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and now today's Russian Federation for literally centuries. So, you know, after Russia annexed uh, Crimea, NATO imposed economic sanctions on Russia, but they left out Russia's oil imports. Why? Well, recently, just uh, on that, the, the United States and Britain agreed to embargo uh, Russian uh, oil exports to their own countries, but that hasn't been extended more widely. The reason is clearly fear of uh, energy shortage and driving uh, energy shortages and driving prices up too high to feed inflation and lead potentially to an erosion of the support for sanctions within domestic societies. It's a it's a delicate political balance. The Western countries that are opposed, and by West, I'm including all the allies. We're talking about Japan, we're talking about Australia, et cetera, et cetera, South Korea, and more. But this, this coalition is trying to impose costs on Russia, but not imposing so many costs on their own population that ultimately these sanctions become unpopular and they're removed. To sustain the sanctions, they must be politically sustainable. And for many countries, embargoing Russia's petroleum exports, gas and oil, would potentially generate such economic costs that they would these these governments would be in fear of losing public support for their stance against Russia. Right. In two thousand fourteen, right after um, Russia annexed uh, Crimea, do you think America at that point knew Putin's intention regarding Ukraine? and had a coherent a strategy to deal with him? No, we did not know his intention. There were some who thought his intention was to bring Ukraine under the sphere of influence of Russia. There are some analysts, both inside and out of government, who actually feared that Putin, uh, Putin had a grander objective of incorporating the entire country back into some sort of reconstituted Soviet uh, Russian empire. But people were uncertain because after all, what he was doing in 2014 was still relatively low cost operations for Russia. So it was hard to know how intently he was fixated on this Ukraine issue. It was difficult to know how far he would go. It was difficult to know how resolved he was on rectifying what he regards as the historical injustice or this historical problem of Russia, of Ukraine's westward drift. And so I think the, the United States and many of its chief allies um, kind of were de debating among themselves about the strength of, of Putin's intention. That debate wasn't really solved until two weeks ago. Right. Uh, but after Crimea, the U.S. and NATO should at least know Russia is determined to stop the NATO expansion, then why were we still arming the Ukrainians to provoke Russia? Well, we were attempting to make Ukraine a tougher nut for the Russians, for Putin to crack. We were trying to make it a, that to raise the cost of Russia to Russia of seeking a military solution. We were seeking to respond to Ukrainian demands for aid. After all, Ukraine was at war. It's a sovereign country. It was asking for aid of a military nature from its friends around the world. There was nothing illegal about this, nothing underhanded. It was all out in the open. So the United States figured, 
Um, if Russia is going to play hardball by annexing territory, namely Crimea, and intervening in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, well, we can play hardball too, and we can bolster the Ukrainians' ability to resist by transferring some of these weapons. The problem with that is it seems to have created in Russia, in the Kremlin, in Putin's mind, a fear not just of Ukraine in NATO, but a fear of NATO in Ukraine. In other words, in the speeches you saw the Russian leadership give in the lead up to this invasion, you saw them saying, you know, this whole issue of Ukraine's membership in NATO is kind of a, 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 a red herring. Because what's happening as we're sitting here debating NATO is Western countries are aiding Ukraine and making Ukraine essentially a part of the Western security structure. Now, to finish this off, in defense of the United States and the others who were aiding Ukraine, really the weaponry that was being transferred was not particularly threatening to Russia. It was really sort of, I mean, there's no such thing as a purely defensive weapon, but these weapons were pretty much meant to defend Ukrainian territory. It was kind of hard to see how they would be a threat to Russia. And in short, in sum, the U.S. did exercise a little bit of care in the kinds of gear and hardware that it was given to the Ukrainians up until the invasion. Hmm. So do you think NATO expansion justified Putin's invasion of Ukraine? No. I think NATO expansion to Ukraine, I think that Bucharest declaration, I'm not sorry, that Bucharest uh, uh, NATO declaration that we discussed at the beginning of this interview, I think those were mistakes by uh, by NATO. I don't think NATO should have offered this promise to Ukraine if it couldn't actually keep it. And it couldn't. Everybody knew it. So they kind of didn't do Ukraine any favors by suggesting membership when it wasn't really happening. So that's a blunder. That's a mistake. We shouldn't have done it. But in no way does it justify this brutal invasion. I think, frankly, Russia is the main one at fault here. I don't think it's particularly controversial to say it. They faced no threat from Ukraine that justified this ruthless and bloody use of force. Indeed, I think that a lot of the fault, frankly, lies with the Kremlin. Their policies in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, the cyber attacks they did on Ukraine, their intervention in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, their attempt at election meddling and information war against Ukraine, all of these policies have just pushed Ukrainians more and more favorable towards the West. If public opinion in Ukraine was split regarding their relationship between Russia and the West back before 2014, it's not split anymore. And the reason for that primarily is what the Russian government has done to Ukraine. So I think really most of the blame for this falls on the Kremlin. And certainly there's no justifying this this brutal attack on a country that, again, just in no way a, a presented a serious national security threat to, to Russia at, as of 20, uh, 2021, 2022. Right. I think we can definitely see an escalation on Putin's part regarding Ukraine from, you know, 2014 to 2022. So why do you think Putin made the military move right now? There's uh, no one knows. We have to be very, very, very careful here. Uh, uh, I have read and listened to his speeches. I have uh, listened to his top officials. I have I, I go I used to before the pandemic travel to Russia all the time, have many good friendships and connections to Russian international relations scholars. It's important to recognize that top Russian political commentators, connected experts uh, did not expect this to happen. Uh, so why why he did it? People don't know. There's two basic arguments here. Argument number one is he saw it as a propitious, a, a good time to move because he had his army ready, because he thought China, Xi Jinping would have his back and help him out if there were any sanctions, because he had a $630 billion uh, foreign currency and other uh, uh, reserves that he could draw upon should he face sanctions because he feared that Ukraine was moving faster and faster west and he had to move now because energy markets were tight. You know, you can put this list together of things that sort of give you this idea of now is the time to move rather than later. Um, but there's a second argument, and that is that especially once he isolated himself, that is to say, once President Putin isolated himself. Uh, in the pandemic times, he became ever more kind of closed-minded, uh, 
ever more insulated from contrary views and began to obsess on historical matters and his legacy in history and some sense became a somewhat different and more risk acceptant leader than he was prior to this isolation. I mean, what, how many, how many leaders of big countries, you know, write, you know, 10,000 word essays on historical subjects and cite all kinds of ancient documents and ask their aides to go pull documents from the archives so they can make these elaborate historical arguments. It began to seem a little weird. So those are the two different kind of stories as to why now and why he took such a fateful and costly and ultimately disastrous both for Russia and especially for Ukraine, a decision that he did uh, two weeks ago. Do you think President Biden and Afghanistan also played a role? People say they thought that that suggested uh, an, an administration that was in disarray or incompetent. I don't really buy that. Frank, I think it's possible that the most important thing the Biden administration conveyed that may have uh, incentivized or not incentivized, the more most important message coming from Washington that may have fed into Putin's decision was the consistent message that we want to focus on China, not Europe. Over and over again, Biden officials said, look, we need to sort out our relations with Russia. Let's get this thing settled. Let's kind of get the Europe thing quieted down so we can do what we really want to do, which is deal with China. And that might have fed the impression that the Americans would sort of kind of accept it ultimately if Russia could achieve a quick, relatively low cost regime change operation in Ukraine. Of course, that turned out to be a pipe dream, but that's one of the arguments. I frankly think this idea of Biden as a rational kind of realist statesman who wants to focus on China is far more important than any inferences that Moscow might have made from their disastrous handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Hmm. Russia demanded three things, basically, neutrality for Ukraine, demilitarization of the country, and recognition of uh, breakaway regions and loss of Crimea. First of all, I was wondering, uh, what does demilitarization mean? Does that mean Ukraine would no longer have a military? Well, these demands, first of all, are uh, 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 articulated by Putin's uh, spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, and they are coming out of reports of the negotiations in Turkey that recently took place and negotiations in Belarus that recently took place between Ukrainians and Russians. They haven't a been able to even agree on such basic issues as safe, safe passage corridors, uh, not to mention a ceasefire, and certainly not to mention an actual settlement to the crisis. So we don't really know what Russia's bottom line actually is. I would say that um, that um, by demilitarization, we, we we just don't have it spelled out yet what they have in mind. Uh, I think it's probably fair to interpret what they mean as a severance of any Ukrainian military cooperation or connection with NATO or any NATO country. Uh, not necessarily to mean that Ukraine can't have any military at all, but just that it can't have any military that has any connection to the West. And I think that's a non-starter for Ukrainians. I mean, think about it. If you were just invaded by a huge neighbor, I mean, to be told that your only way to settle the crisis is to demilitarize is simply an invitation uh, to Ukraine to continue fighting. Right. Uh, what do you think of Russia's demands? Uh, from what they said, do you think... Putin's main goal for this invasion is to stop the NATO expansion or to revive the Russian Empire's glory by reclaiming lost land or both. I can tell you what I hope, and I think I and I think there is at least some evidence for this hope. What I hope is, is that Putin will attenuate and reduce his demands in light of the unexpectedly potent resistance put up by Ukraine and the clear evidence that overwhelmingly Ukrainian society has very, has no receptivity whatsoever to Russia's 
role as a ruler over Ukraine or as uh, a, a kind of a, a overlord over Ukraine. I mean, we're seeing such potent evidence for this that one hopes that Putin will see that he miscalculated and therefore will reduce his aims. Because to go back to your original question, I originally would have, if you had asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, yes, if we could make Ukraine neutral, that will settle the whole problem. But then this, uh, in, over the summer and this fall and winter, we started getting these speeches from Putin about all the historical things, about how Ukrainians and Russians are really one people, about how the state of Ukraine doesn't really have any organic essence to it. It's really just a, a, a confection, a creation of the you know vagaries of history. We really shouldn't take it very seriously. I mean, why did he say those things? I mean, if you say those things, you're basically saying to Ukraine, I don't accept you as a real country. Right. And so when he started saying those things, I began to worry that his aim actually was this much more grandiose aim of reintegrating Ukraine one way or another into the Russian state. Um, but now I'm hoping, and there's some evidence that you just cited regarding the negotiations that are underway, I'm hoping that the Russian leadership will scale back its demands in the face of the powerful resistance by the Ukrainians and the overwhelmingly powerful response by so many countries around the world. What do you think would be Putin's bottom line in Ukraine? Just don't know. I'm hoping the bottom line could be something like uh, armed neutrality for Ukraine. So not not a Ukraine that is demilitarized and can't defend itself, but a Ukraine that could have a significant military, but that would uh, be uh, constitutionally or by international agreement um, not able to join any bloc, either Russia or a Russian-led bloc or the the NATO bloc, that he would be uh, that he would probably he'll always will demand Crimea. I think uh, the Ukrainian leadership might accede to that. Then some kind of autonomy, uh, some kind of special recognition for those eastern statelets. Uh, he might insist upon their full uh, secession from Ukraine. I mean, he's already recognized them farcically in a way as independent states. I think those might conceivably be thought of as a bottom line. I don't I don't know because you're also seeing rhetoric coming from Moscow that suggests they really want to subordinate Ukraine in a kind of definitive irreversible way that it seems almost no treaty could possibly deliver. So I'm uncertain about that, but there's at least hope that they would settle on those demands. Now, will the Ukrainians accept them? They're pretty tough demands for any Ukrainian leadership to accept, but we're seeing at least some movement in that direction in recent days. Yeah. Uh, how do you comment on Putin's mental state? I mean, he, de he definitely demonstrated the will or, you know, the, he doesn't care too much about He doesn't have a lot of problem killing civilians. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, no, he never has. I mean, if you look back to I, he was a freshly minted prime minister and president when they ramped up the war in Chechnya, that breakaway or attempted breakaway province of Russia, and uh, they flattened Grozny to rubble, uh, no problem. And if you look at what the Russian military did in Aleppo and Syria, they, they leveled that city. This is a person who has absolutely no qualms whatsoever about laying waste uh, to, a, to a city. And uh, and uh, and I can imagine he would. Well, we already see his willingness to undertake such operations or to 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 order or accept such operations in Ukraine. But regarding his mental state, I don't know, obviously, but I would say I have no evidence and no good reason to believe that he cannot calculate costs and benefits. I mean, I think you saw a miscalculation here. He thought the West was more disunited than it was. He thought Ukraine was uh, more uh, uh, collapsible and less resilient than it was. And so he made some mistakes. So it's possible that he can update his cost benefit calculations in the face of new evidence. I see no evidence that he's incapable of doing that. So I'm not quite as freaked out as some are by the potential for him to be somehow crazy or have lost control of his senses. But again, as I stress, this is all based on circumstantial evidence rather than some sort of uh, analysis of, uh, of Vladimir Vladimir Putin on some couch somewhere. I mean, it's just not possible. What about the nuclear threat? Do you think he really could do something like that? Uh, he wouldn't do that in response to simply sanctions or in response to us sending uh, various uh, uh, defensive weaponry to Ukraine. Um, but he wants to remind us that he has these things. And so on two occasions, he's made reference to the nuclear option. 
there's no evidence, according to U.S. intelligence that's been discussed, of the actual change in the alert status of the Russian nuclear force. It's simply kind of a reminder like, hey, West, just to so you don't forget, we've got these nuclear weapons. I'm just trying to draw some red lines here. I do think they would apply, however, if the uh, military of any NATO country, but especially the United States, began actively operating in the skies or on the territory of Ukraine, then you're starting to get into escalation territory. But you'd have many, many steps to go, even from a scenario in which U.S. and Russians were fighting, Americans and Russians were fighting directly. You'd have many steps from that uh, to any situation in which nuclear use would become something that I think he would seriously contemplate. Hmm. Interesting. How effective are the sanctions? Well, sanctions um, uh, work over a long term. I mean, basically, you have these financial sanctions. They tend to hit hard right away, and then people kind of adjust. And then you have these commodity sanctions, so sanctions on all kinds of goods that uh, Russia uh, would normally imp export and import. And, um, and those generally take quite a while to actually affect the target. So the sanctions are impressive. Uh, the financial sanctions are still working their way through the system, both the global financial system and Russia's financial system. The degree to which they'll be able to compensate and find workarounds, the degree to which China will help out, all of these remain somewhat uncertain. But I think the consensus of sanctions experts is that sanctions are going to work, if they work at all, in imposing and affecting the actual calculus of the Russian leadership. They're going to work at a much slower pace than military events on the ground. Uh, put differently, they're not going to, on their own, stop Russia from doing essentially whatever it wants to try to do militarily on the territory of Ukraine. It's a sad truth, but it's one that most experts accept. It's in the anticipation, it's looking forward to the future and thinking about the cumulative costs of sanctions over the long run. It's that that might affect calculations in the Kremlin regarding the terms they'll seek from Ukraine to end this war. Hmm. Uh, you know, I heard some analysts say there's only one person in this world that can influence President Putin, and that's Xi Jinping. I mean, do you agree with it? And uh, how much support uh, do you think China is uh, giving Putin right now? Well, that's a question for China experts. Uh, and experts on the Sino-Russian relationship, you know, uh, not to deflect your question at all, I'll answer it, but I would say that this is such a uh, an important strategic partnership between Beijing and Moscow now that there are actually people, experts, who spend all of their time just studying this relationship. That's, in a sense, a sign of its geopolitical, geoeconomic importance. Um, I'm seeing some subtle signs that the Chinese leadership is kind of like trying to hedge a little bit here. They're a little bit reluctant to endure the threat of secondary sanctions, that is, sanctions on Chinese firms if they deal with certain uh, commerce with Russia. And so you're seeing a little more hesitation. But at the end of the day, my reading of the situation of these experts who study this relationship is that China, although is uncomfortable with some aspects of that, uh, Xi Jinping will be very reluctant to abandon Putin and do anything that would be the kind of that Putin would see as having caused him to have to surrender in Ukraine. I can't. I mean, most people cannot imagine the Chinese leadership doing such a thing to their key great power rival in Moscow, especially since, in some sense, Moscow's success in pushing back against the West is in some sense helping China because it's deflecting American power from relocating into its region. So there's a kind of geopolitical benefit to China of this uh, China-Russia fallout, although China will want to insulate itself from as much of the economic fallout from this as it can. And that's where we see some subtle evidence of kind of backing away from completely 150% support, you know, a, a partnership without limits, as they said at Beijing. But I think at the end of the day, I, to repeat and to emphasize, the people who spend their time studying this alliance cannot imagine Xi Jinping playing the role that you suggested people think, namely as the person who literally causes Putin to give up on his Ukraine gambit. Very hard to imagine that happening. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, America has made it clear uh, it's not going to impose no-fly zone over Ukraine. And, uh, you know, now Ukraine is, I mean, although 
Putin has met a steep resistance from the Ukrainian army and uh, civilians, but Ukrainian army is not winning either. So do you think America and NATO should still support Ukraine to fight to the end? If the Ukrainian uh, leadership, and as far as we can tell uh, in these crazy circumstances, as far as we can judge Ukrainian society, wants us to continue aiding them, I think we should continue aiding them. They have a, they are a sovereign government that's been attacked viciously and in an unprovoked fashion uh, by a neighboring great power. They, as a sovereign country, have an absolute right to ask for assistance when they are under duress. And we are, together with many other countries, providing a large amounts of such assistance. And so that, to me, as long as it is something that the Ukrainians want and is not going to risk escalation of this crisis into a U.S.-Russia war, I, I, I think it is absolutely uh, 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 the best uh, policy to follow. Hmm. How do you see the way out of this? The only way out of this is for Ukraine and Russia to find terms that they both can accept. And it sounds banal, but somehow each has to conclude that a deal with the other that is on the table is better than the continuing bloodshed and war. And they seem to me, as best as I can judge, to be far away from that for now. Each, you know, especially I think Russia needs to tone down or reduce its expectations. But the problem is each side has a story. It can tell itself as to how it can continue the fight. I mean, Russia has this huge army. It can keep going. As I said, the sanctions are not going to physically stop Russia from continuing the fight. They have a lot, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, a lot left they can do. They might still harbor this idea that they can pummel, bludgeon, bomb Ukraine society into submission and somehow extract some sort of victory from this. Ukrainians, based on their extraordinary performance so far and based on some evidence of poor morale and training on the part of the Russian army, might conclude that they can continue fighting and keep imposing costs on Putin such that he'll agree to a deal closer to what they want. So that's how wars end. You should watch out and keep an eye out for negotiations about uh, corridors uh, for humanitarian relief, and especially for talks about a potential ceasefire. These sometimes um, can lead and morph into actual peace negotiations. And so it can be a subtle process where they first negotiate the immediate crisis and then kind of it spreads into trying to find a general settlement. And certainly the international community, including the United States and all of its allies and others, including China, India, the whole world, uh, Turkey is putting itself forward. Israel should provide their good offices and their resources to try to support such a deal. How likely is it for the Ukrainian army to drive Russian military out of their country? I mean, I don't think it's I don't I don't think it's likely at all. All they can do is make it as costly as possible to the Russians. The I'm I'm not a military expert. I think you're going to talk to one. I mean, but everyone who's spent any time studying military operations knows that an offense in this kind of well, in any situation, offense is much harder than defense. In other words, the exchange ratio of losses tends to be on the side of the uh, 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 the favor of the defender and able to inflict more casualties on the uh, on the attacker than the defender. And so Ukrainians to switch over to the offense and start driving these gigantic armored forces out of their country would be an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. On the other hand, in their cities and in their forests and in their mountains, in the West there are mountains and Russia isn't there yet, but anyway, in their cities and in their forests and in their fields, and they can inflict terrible losses on the Russians as long as the Russians are the ones trying to advance. So I think that's where you're going to see the conflict going in the near term. Hmm. Okay, if that happens, do you think uh, the Russians will eventually give in? Again, I just don't know. I think that um, uh, I, I don't see the signs yet uh, that the Russian general staff and the top military leadership and the political leadership of Russia under Putin have sort of reached the end of what they think they can do with this military operation. I mean, they are they are trying to do something. They are trying to encircle Kiev. They have more cards to play. Unfortunately, these cards are bloody and in some cases uh, inflicting untold misery and death upon civilians. But they have cards yet to play that they can that they can that they can attempt to try to force Ukraine uh, into submission. And so I, I hope that this is not true, but I 
I'm afraid if I had to bet, I would say that they are going to attempt to play some of those cards before you see any willingness on their part to really give up on some of their demands. Last question. How will Europe and the world be different after this? Well, this is a terrible answer, but it's the only honest one. It depends on how this conf- uh, this conflict ends, how this conflict is seen to end, how the world sees the conflict as ending. If Russia easily wins what it wants, gets everything it wanted uh, with a military assault directly on a completely defend, uh, innocent, defensive uh, country like Ukraine and wins, that will be in some sense a blow to the entire order for which the United States and allies say they stand, to their position in the world, to their, if I can use an old-fashioned word, to their prestige, the, 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 the esteem in which they are held, and, and the respect for their power. If the West, and especially the Ukrainians, but helped by the West, kind of, in some sense, are seen to have won this crisis, it will, in some sense, might be seen as buttressing their position, reversing uh, their perceived decline up to this point, showing that that thing we call the West is still meaningful, it's still united, and it can still really impose horrific costs on countries that seek to, on actors that seek to harm it. So that's essentially partly what's being fought over here, is how this, conf- this conflict will, seen, will be seen to have ended. Will it be seen to have ended a- as a kind of further push against the American-led order, a further move towards multipolarity in the international system, or will it be seen as ending kind of, in some sense, revivifying, rejuvenating, strengthening, ratifying the position of the United States and its allies in the world? That's what's at stake. And until the we see how it ends out, uh, until we see where the bottom line is, where the bargaining comes out, we won't know. In my if I had to predict, it would be, in fact, it will not be seen neither as a decisive victory for one side nor as a decisive victory for the other side. There'll be competing interpretations of this outcome. But again, that's a, a rank guess. Great, Professor. These are all my questions. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think that was comprehensive. It was a great conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Professor. That's all for today. Thanks for watching Zooming In. Please like, share, subscribe, and donate to this program if you like my content. We're also in the process of making an in-depth report on the Russian-Ukrainian war. It will be out next week. Finally, I would like to thank our sponsor Shenyun Performing Arts for supporting this show. Watch Shenyun at your nearest theater, and you can get discounted tickets by being an audience member of Zooming In. Just visit this website. Tickets sell out quickly, so get yours today. Thanks for watching Zooming In. I'm Simon Gao, and I'll see you next time.